Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi everybody. I'm Robbie Hamza. This is the talk. Thank you for joining us. I've got a dear brother of mine, Abdul Basir Rashidi, joining us today. Abdul, salam alaikum, bro. Alaikum salam. How are you? Alhamdulillah, good. How are you? Very good, bro. So Abdul's um, Abdul's a lawyer, a criminal lawyer, who looks after a lot of us. Uh, we refer all the boys to. Um, we've got a, lo- a great deal of um, respect and respect for and uh and i trust this guy a lot and um why welcome bro it's good to have you here and we want to talk have a bit of a conversation today about stuff that's gone in the community what you're dealing with um i want to sort of probably break it down and go into a little bit into your background in terms of like how and why you got into law from there um we need to sort of have a bit of a look at sort of explaining the way the system generally works because i think a lot of people at home a lot of families a lot of people have got no idea what the hell they're dealing with until it's too late. You've got police in your house, you're standing in front of a judge. Um, no one's really prepared on how to handle that situation un- until it happens, right? Um, and then also looking at sort of what's going on specifically with our community um, in terms of what you're seeing, what's going on interstate, and we can sit there and, and um, daydream about why we think this is all going on. So let's start with you. Um, what made you get into law, bro? Why, why choose this profession? I had a small interest in high school. So when I, when I was in high school in Sydney, um, I, ha- I did uh, legal studies as part of one of my electives. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was just, I was, I was good at it. I found it interesting. Um, and then just, it, I did it for the next year in year 9, 10, 11 and 12. Yeah. And then when I finished school, I went and got a normal job um, and just never thought about it until one day I just woke up and I said, hey, I was, you know, that's something that I could use and, you know, I got the brains for it, alhamdulillah. Um, and it's something that I, I could benefit, but more importantly, if I could benefit the community, um, then, I'll, uh, then I should give it a go. And then you, your family's involved in law, right? Your older brother's a lawyer as well? Yeah, yeah. So initially I, I started um, in, at uh, law school. I went to uni. I was the first one. Uh, and then a few months later, my brother said, hey, that's something that we should all do. And then my second brother, well, he's older than me, but uh, the second in the family, he joined up. Oh, all three of you? Yeah, no, my eldest one is not. He's, okay. uh, he's an architect. Um, yeah. So it's me and my uh, f- uh, the second brother, but he's older than me. And then, uh, yeah, he, he's got his own firm in Sydney and Canberra. So mm. alhamdulillah, he does a he lot. He does of, criminal law as well? No, he does corporate, family, okay. uh, commercial. Why do you choose criminal law? Uh, I... F- I found that was the biggest thing in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the youth were involved. A lot of the youth were finding it hard. When I was studying law, um, I started. I started studying in 2009. There was, I think, it was just the start of racial profiling, if I could call it that, mm-hmm. um, of the Muslim community. Uh, yeah. It had been happening before, but we we'd never got into the stages of where it was coming down hard. And where were you? Were you in Sydney or Canberra? Uh, no, so I was living uh, when when I left Sydney, um, I moved to the Gold Coast to study. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I didn't realise you studied up here. Yeah, so I studied at Bond Uni on the Gold Coast. Okay, um, and then um, I finished off in Canberra because I had to move back for my family. Is it a three-year course for uh, at Bond at that time? It was two years and eight months. Okay, so All they right. do a fast track degree. Yeah, um, three semesters a year. Yeah, uh, which means you don't get the holidays, but it means you finish quicker. Yeah, um, they were the only ones doing it in Australia that quick um, or in that period of time mm. back then. Now a lot of the universities doing fast track. Um, I know Griffith is, UNE is, um, Southern Cross, um, a couple of the interstate universities are all doing. Uh, fast track. Yeah, no one wants to sort of wait four years before you can start earning yeah, money, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you, well, you don't even earn money after four years. You you finish your degree and then you have to do a practical legal training course, which is about six months, mm-hmm. and then you have to do some work experience. And by the time you're even earning anything, it's probably close to five five years. Mm. Uh, and then you'll be on a salary that you can probably earn, earn more money, becoming cleaner. Yeah, okay. Initially, so you've really got to love it. Like you've got, you've got to be. <laughs> yeah, you have to have a the right reasons. You have yeah. to have a passion for it, and especially criminal law. Criminal law is probably in the whole legal profession. Um, criminal law is the one of the lowest earning um, sort of sectors in, in law. And I suppose you you got to choose at some point what side of it you're going to be on, right? Whether you're going to defend people, or you're going to you want to focus on prosecution. That's right. So so how do you make that decision? <laughs> that that was a difficult one because when yeah. I first came out uh, of law school, I wanted to join. Uh, prosecution, mm-hmm. um, mainly because of the experience. 
Um, but when I started my work experience uh, and started my employment, I realized who they were in bed with. And uh, I said, no, nah, I better not get in there. <laughs> and you'd be up against every single one of your mates. <laughs> well, it wasn't so much that. It was um, how they... I mean, my client is the defendant. Yeah. The prosecution is also... They, they're also lawyers, but they also have clients, which is the police force. So yeah, it'll okay. either be the Queensland Police Force or the AFP... Uh, or interstate New South Wales or Victorian police or whoever they're dealing with. Now, as much as I defend or try to um, defend uh, my clients' rights and put up a case for them, the prosecution, who are also lawyers, uh, will do the same thing for for the police force. Mm. Um, now, unfortunately, uh, uh, as uh, recent cases have shown, that... Um, it's not always smooth sailing or they're not always um, 100% <laughs> honest, uh, the coppers. It's been alleged. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so when, I was, um, when I was thinking about it, I'm like, I mean, with, with defence, you have to look at the defence and mm. see if anyone has a defence or uh, mitigating circumstances and you do your best to get the best outcome. You're having a client as the police force. Uh, you have to sort of make sure everything's done to get the result they want. Um, and you don't want to be seen as letting criminals go, mm. uh, quotation marks. I imagine it'd be hard on either side of the table at times because you must get, you must come across some people where you're conflicted. I imagine the prosecutors would come up against, uh, come into situations where they feel like someone's really being untargeted, targeted unfairly, and it would be hard for them sort of morally to to do their job to the best of their ability to try and prosecute someone. But likewise, I mean, have you ever come across a client where you're like, okay, I'll take this on, and then you get into the to the nuts and bolts of it, and you realise, man, this guy's a scumbag, and I can't really, I can't do this. There, there are sensitive areas which I don't deal with. Um, for example, um, child sexual abuse or yeah. child pornography is areas I don't, I don't go. So if someone comes to me and says, hey, I've been charged with it. Yeah, no, uh, thanks. I just say, yeah, look, sorry, I can't. I, I won't be right representing you because if it, if something does come across that you have mm. actually done it, then I won't put my heart into it. Now I'm the same with the chaplaincy. Look, and, and it, probably in the role that I'm in, it's mm. probably expected that I rise above that at some stage. If rise above is the right term, but yeah, I can't have anything to do with yeah. champs and stuff, child champs. It's just I'm not the right person. I will not deliver a, yeah. uh, an unbiased message to that person. I just can't sit there, I, yeah. you know, and come to terms with those sorts um, of things. If, if, if the allegations come. Um, unfortunately, um, we get a we get a lot of them when divorce happens uh, yep. between families, um, and then one side alleges um, that the father or the mother sexually abused a child, and then there's no basis for it. It's just an allegation. Um, if 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 I come across a case like that, then I do take it on because then it, until the brief comes and it, and if the brief shows something different, then obviously I'll decide then. Because legit, there's a lot of that going on. Eh? Oh, like the man the. the family breakup stuff and how nasty it gets and spiteful and vengeful back and forth and it just turns into a yes and all that yes, war so and anything goes yes, eh? yeah so unfortunately that's that's what happens and then obviously that needs to be investigated by uh the professionals doctors mm. um, to see if there's any abuse taking place um, they do their checks they send us reports and if the reports come or you know there's evidence for it mm. then obviously uh, that leaves me in a position where i might have to withdraw yeah in a lot of those cases where there's allegations by one partner mm. um that they, um, that the other partner sexually abused or abused the child, mm. um, then I treat it with a grain of salt uh, uh, until the evidence comes. Until you see, yeah. see the facts. Yeah. In my dealings with matters, um, about ninety percent of those cases turn out to be just false allegations because they're wow. going through a they're going through a battle in the family court. Wow. And they want to get custody or property, so they make an allegation to throw this guy off his uh, or, or Gil um, or the woman mother off their target and. And then they just, you know, let him fighting another legal battle in the criminal court. I must say, after um, the more time I spend sort of in the in this arena, uh, working with people in these sorts of situations, the the more reserved I've become about sort of um, making up my mind or having too much judgment. Because it's yeah, when you actually read the paperwork, you, you hear a story about someone, you mm. make up your mind, you think oh they're putrid, but then you read the paperwork and you go, hang on a second, how is this even? How is this guy even in court? How have they charged this person? Yeah, like, yeah. so that, that, that was my difficulty of going for a job in the prosecutions. Yeah. Um, because you get a bunch of evidence from the police force and it's an allegation because they think 
certain words on a message mean something or a yeah. phone call with between two people means something when in reality it's just there's some explanation or innocence behind it there seems um, to be like a pretty low threshold for what's required to charge someone well, well that, sometimes that, that's the difficulty we have and i and i think this is this is part of the problem we're facing in the community um is that people they hang around the wrong crowd mm. um and that sort of brings their names out on certain police intelligence or databases um and then now they start being a target um because their friends are a drug user or a drug dealer mm. so next time they get pulled over and then they feel like the police are doing something but yeah it's uh, i mean it's only reasonable suspicion um like you can start having telephone conversations with somebody who's mm. a drug dealer and you could be asking for money to borrow or you know he may owe you money from years ago and you could be asking for your money back mm. um and then they the police make something out of it yeah um and then boom you're charged and then by the time that matter goes through the courts um and you defend yourself and it, if it's a, a a charge that gets indicted and goes to the to the high courts you've spent close to fifty thousand dollars well, this this is the problem and this is one thing i really want to focus on is the way the system is set up and it really you know the amount of guys i know who've been charged and they just end up putting their hand up for stuff i've done it in the past when i was younger as well you're charged with a number of things let's say two of them stick and, and the rest is nonsense i think it would be fair to say the average person probably the average person in this country can't really afford doesn't have the cash lying around to pay what it costs to get to get a solicitor right like so the, the the cops throw something at you and then it's on you to defend yourself because right do you think it seems to me that we, we we watch a lot of american television and i think we grow up here thinking that the legal system here is the same as this is america mm. you know i've heard people sort of ranting on about oh they can't do that it's entrapment like what are you talking about entrapment that doesn't exist here yeah. so First of all, I don't think we've got a really good understanding of the legal system that governs us here. And then once we're in the middle of it, you realise, I mean, who's got, yeah, 50 grand, 100,000, like, it'd be easier for me. I'd probably just about rather put my hand up for a sort of mediocre type of charge. I'd rather do 18 months in jail than cost my family 50 grand and put them through hardship. Well, well that, that's, that's the dilemma we're in um, because the, and this is the problem our youth are facing because they get charged with offences that mm. generally, um, if they're first-time offenders, uh, for example, silly driving without a licence charge. Yep. You know, you get caught your second time or your third time, you really possi possibly you, you'll get jail time uh, or a stint in prison or criminal record. Yeah. Um, but people get caught with a little bit of cannabis or, you know, a drug and they don't think that, you know, this is the end of the world. But what they don't realise or if they don't fight the charge um, is they end up with a criminal record mm -hmm. and that's on your first offence and you don't end up going to jail. And then on your second offence, you do open that gate up mm -hmm. of spending time in jail. Um, but, yeah, they don't, they don't have... Uh, giving one example, uh, uh, one... Uh, guy from the community here he went on a road trip with a few of his mates um, and then had a blue um, was left high and uh, up in the air uh, sort of in a town uh, in regional Queensland uh, couldn't get back until the following day that his parents had to book him a flight back and he had nowhere to stay didn't have his wallet on him couldn't book a hotel didn't have money so he went and thought the safest place was to sleep behind a police station mm -hmm. went and tried to have a nap there the police saw him on CCTV, came around and charged him with trespass. Okay. Now, uh, the issue is that the cost of making submissions on the matter got rejected, so they said, no, we're not going to drop the charge. Taking the matter to trial would have cost this guy a, a good couple of grand. He didn't have the money to fight it. So mm. for him, it would, be, it would have been a plea of convenience. Now, if not many lawyers take these matters on, on pro bono, um, you know, so for him, it would have just been, all right, it's a trespass charge. You know, I put my hand up, plead guilty. Uh, but if he had done that, that's a criminal record on his record. I mean, you know, an entry on his criminal record. Mm. And then it just builds up from there. It's those <sighs> minor offences that yeah. people think, hey, mm. you know, they don't even think twice about what their actions or what they're doing. Mm. Um, but, you know, three or four or five minor offences now you've got your names the magistrates at the court know who you are the police know who you are and now you're a um 
your 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 dot or your target for them. I think you know a lot of people. I th- I know I, my young years as well. A lot of stuff, crimes are sort of committed in ignorance. You know, I mean, there's a commonsensical stuff that you know that, you know, if I if I do this, it's and get caught. There's dramas. You know, it's something to do with drugs or stealing or hitting someone and all that sort of stuff that a reasonable person would be expected to have some sort of understanding of. But when it comes to financial things, there's a lot of other stuff too. You just don't realise. I mean, one kid I know was when he's. 16 was he 17 or 16 i think 16 out with a group of friends um a couple of kids he didn't even really know they're out um on the gold coast they get into an altercation an argument with another group of kids they get into a fight um it's not an uncommon scenario i mean it yep. happens right one of the kids that was with him pulls out a knife and stabs one of the other kids now all those kids who were children at the time were initially charged with murder yeah and they're facing you know at very least man sort of charges and these young guys have got, I mean, they've got no idea. You, you sort of think, oh, well, I'm not doing it. If you're in a car full of, of blokes and they go do a break into a house or something, or if they bash someone and you think, oh, well, I stayed in the car, I didn't get involved. Nah, you're, you're, you're pinched too, mate. Yeah. yeah I think well, a lot of kids just don't know what they're up against to weigh up the risk and reward of, of, yeah, well, of their actions. This is, this is part of choosing carefully who your friends are mm. uh, and who you hang around because uh, the laws here, exactly like how you explained, um, allow for individuals to be charged as like if one person in the group does something mm-hmm. uh, and it ref- or it, it's it's done as as a group then other individuals can be charged yeah. um, now again um, the case doesn't always stick but by the time you go through the court process it's taken two years you've spent mum and dad's retirement money um, if they have it if they don't have it you know you're going on to you know working your butt off to make sure you can pay your lawyer um, and unfortunately, the legal aid system um, doesn't fork out enough for you to get a lawyer that actually cares. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about legal aid because that's that's an interesting one. I was, I always, I mean, I've always known it's common knowledge that legal aid doesn't get you much bang for your buck in terms of representation generally. Um, but I was quite shocked to talk to you and find out. Um, sort of ballpark figure how much lawyers actually get when they put in a legal application legal aid application for someone i mean it's it's peanuts it doesn't justify really more than two or three days work and you're expected to well um i mean smaller matters um without going into too much detail uh, on smaller matters a, a lawyer that's working on legal aid um on a legal aid grant will only get probably close to two hours of, of private lawyer fees. Yeah. So you could imagine how much... How hard is this guy going to work for you? Work for you, yeah. um, given your matters dragging through the magistrate's court um, for six months uh, and is mentioned every month or every couple of weeks uh, to progress the matter. Um, for a matter in the higher court, you're probably looking at, you know, if it's not a special grant or an expensive grant, mm. you're only looking at, you know, less than a couple of thousand. It's a legal aid now too, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, if... If you want to run a trial, if you want to plead not guilty on something, for the for legal aid to um, for you to be eligible for legal aid, they've got to sort of um, ascertain that you've got a reasonable chance of winning that, right? Yeah, they have to assess. So, so your lawyer will put an assessment in and say, "Hey, we we believe there's prospects," um, and then they will assess it and decide whether they grant um, funding for it. And then, if legal aid doesn't want you stuff, then you just got to put your hand up. Well, it's guilty. Well, that's that. Either fund your lawyer because uh, most lawyers won't. Um, I mean, there are lawyers that do pro bono work, and uh, but you, your chances of finding one of them uh, is, is slim. Sure. Um, so you're yeah, you're basically stuck between a rock and a hard place. Mm. You don't have money to fund a lawyer. You can't. I mean, you can represent yourself, but most people don't understand the legal system or, or how to put up an argument in court. So you get all that stress, and then you decide, hey, it's just mm. less less stressful to just put my hand up. Um, and take the charge and then obviously co- consequences come with that yeah um so yeah i mean unfortunately the, the, it's difficult to get legal aid funding for a committal hearing for example yeah so if you can get your charges thrown out at committal or for example you want to find out some material or, or cross-examine someone at committal legal aid it's very hard to get funding for that mm. uh, it's hard to get a uh, to get funding for a supreme court bail application i think it's only a few hundred bucks uh, a few hundred bucks wow for, for, 
for a Supreme Court bail application when uh, and most people are charging what like eight thousand odd yeah at I least mean, the going rate is anywhere between six six uh, including GST uh, yeah. to close to eight thousand depending on the kind of matter it is so you could imagine how many people or how many lawyers would want to run a uh, a bail application yeah you can get a real, a, a real uh, <laughs> shady little letter to the judge dear, dear judge yeah, <laughs> please yeah. and thank you the yeah. end so that's the difficulties we face and a lot of y- the youth don't realize that hey it might be something minor that you don't think about like going driving unlicensed mm. uh, or, or, or the third time and the other big big problem is this domestic violence we're facing in the community <sighs> crazy um, aim. just it just they don't realize that i mean with the laws now without downplaying the seriousness of it um you could get charged with domestic violence by for yelling at, at at your partner or at your children. Um, yeah. Okay. So here's what I heard. Tell me if this is right. I heard that like now, even we don't want to give too much ammunition to the crazies out there either. Yeah. We just want to um, put their partner in jail. But um, I heard that like okay, let's say me and the missus are out wherever we're out we're out going for a walk. We're at the shops. If I get into a fight with a third party, like if some dude has something to say and me and him get into a biff, I can get charged. That's considered domestic violence on her behalf, just just me having an altercation in her presence. Is that right? Yeah. yeah uh, there, there are cases where if you act violent, uh, I mean, not necessarily when it's outdoors, but if you act violent, in, so if she has a domestic... Um, so if she, for example... Um, witnesses you acting violent yeah um, she could make a claim saying you know that's domestic violence wow so I mean like like I said it's as simple as yelling and swearing at your partner or you being violent towards I think we've all been victims of domestic violence when it comes to getting <laughs> yelled and sworn yelled at, at. <laughs> yeah um, so for example you and your missus and then there's someone sharing sharing the home uh, or, or renting another room in the house, and you, you're you beat up the roommate. You beat up the roommate, mm-hmm. uh, and she says, "Oh, I didn't want you to behave like that." That's you being domestically violent, wow. uh, and and it could. And if she makes a, a complaint, you could be charged for it. Wow! Uh, it usually happens when there's already a domestic violence order, and then you start mm. yelling and screaming again, or towards another person. She's like, hey, "I didn't want you to behave like that around me," um, and then it just. I, I, I can get it. I, I, like. It makes sense. You can think of some scenarios where it would be, you know, I guess the problem is it's like you've, you've got you've got two extremes, you know. We've got like that horrible case that happened a couple of years ago where that um, footballer, ex-footballer, um, set his family alight and himself, yeah. you know, that murder-suicide. Man, how horrible is that? Like, yeah. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. Look, the, the, the reason why the courts are treating it so serious is because we have a, uh, a I mean, we have one, I think the statistics are one a week, um, of domestic murders, yeah. What is it? It's one woman, and uh, yeah, is, well, one a week, one uh, a week, one a week, or uh, I think the last time I checked, it was one a week, or maybe two a week, or something like that. It's ridiculous statistics. Wow, uh, and that's sad, uh, given that you know, in the community. Um, so I think that's why the courts are taking it seriously, mm. uh, and, and rightly so. It's understandable, yeah. Um, but what we don't realize is that you know, you, a young kid comes home from a bender and then starts putting his mum and dad through, uh, you know, yelling, screaming because he's coming high off the drugs or, you know, alcohol, being out with his mates and his parents didn't want him to go out. Mm. If his parents call the cops because he's misbehaving or or she's misbehaving, that's it. There there goes your... I mean, that's the start of a domestic violence application. Mm. And and once you call the police, the police, um, again, rightly so, when they see a... a, uh, something that needs to be addressed that will make the application on your behalf they're obli- yeah they're obliged to right if they see yeah. that there's a significant yeah. risk to someone's safety yeah yeah definitely um so now we get a lot of phone calls from partners of people who have been charged or, or are going through a domestic violence application yeah oh i want to withdraw my complaint it but it wasn't their happen. complaint it's the cops yeah. who've, pl- who've put it in place they've put the application in yeah i see that um, heaps eh? you know so they write letters and they think the lawyers can do anything but in reality we can't we can't even talk to that person mm. uh, and i and i always tell them like you know you can't contact me i'm acting for the, for your partner whoever mm. that may be whether it's a male or female mm. um but th- this is this is why it's stressed so, uh, addressed so seriously you know these domestic violence orders, the way they're set up especially i see you know in and around the prisons so you've got a, a dvo let's and i'm not leaning towards men or women but just for the sake of this example i work in men's prisons. so 
you know, you've, you've got a bloke inside. There's a, a domestic violence order placed either by police or, or t- taken out directly by the partner. So he's not allowed 300 feet from her. He's not allowed to contact her or have anyone contact her um, for any reason. Um, but she can go and visit him in jail whenever she likes. She, th- I mean, this is like, th- there's squillions of these cases, right? She can go in and talk to him and the system allows and the law allows for her to go and visit him. So for all intensive purposes, that relationship is continuing. And often there's kids involved and she'll bring the kids, she'll come. And that'll go on. Let's say someone's incarcerated for two years. That relationship will continue on. She's going and seeing him the whole time. Everything's fine. He gets out either full-time or on probation. He goes back to his missus who he's been with for the last, the whole period of, of the order. And the second he's found at the house, he's rearrested and put into jail for breaching the domestic violence order. It seems to me that if they're going to put something in place and say there's a, there's a risk in this situation, it should be it should be two ways, right? I mean, how can you how can you tell a bloke that you know you can have half a relationship until uh, until you can't? Some of those orders which allow for contact uh, while someone's incarcerated is um, is generally based around most people have children and so they take mm. the children to see the the father or the mother, uh, but it's generally. Um, sort of based around, hey, well, he can't really do much in jail. He's sitting behind a glass. Um, yeah. And, you know, the phone calls are monitored. So if he acts up and she does complain, then he'll be charged again. Um, but, the, yes, I mean, the difficulty is um, once you got a domestic violence order in place, mm. so, if, for example, if, if, if one person has a domestic violence order in place and they're not allowed to contact their partner, mm. but if their partner calls them and they answer the phone, they've breached. Yeah, see, that's, yeah, that, see, that, that's... That's the, that's the difficulty sometimes we face. And we're like, well, what about if it was an emergency? Yeah. Um, or what about if, like, what is it, what's he meant to do? What if it's a private number? I mean, you're meant to hang up at the minute you realise. Because um, you, you put yourself in that situation and, you know, okay, let's say, uh, you know, you've had drama with, the, the, you know, your loved one, it's, it's been bad, you just get past it, you move on, mm-hmm. time's passed, I'm in love with this person, they're in love with me, they're the mother of my kids or they're the father of your or whatever the case may be, um, you know, you have moved past that. You're, you're, you're in a new place and thing, and then you've just got this this third part, this government, big brother's telling you that you're not allowed to be in that relationship. Yeah. What do you, you know, that, that'd be a very hard thing. Well, no, that, that's most of the breaches of domestic violence orders are that. Those sorts of situations. Those sort of situations. The court mm. tells you, the, the orders are generally in place for five years. Now, like you said, people have an argument. The order comes in place because the police have made an application. Mm. Um, to they, you know, a couple of months later, they cool down. They reconnect because you know, for their kids or whatever. The it's life. Is. We work things out. It so happens. They, they get past it, mm. but then you know they don't have the money to make an uh, an application to amend the order um, or go back to court, or they mm. just simply forget about it. They think, hey, if I just go leave and there's nothing going on, you know, we're not arguing, we're not fighting. Mm. It should be sweet. Uh, but then the police attend the property for a different purpose and they realise, hey, you shouldn't be there because there's a DVO in place. Yeah. Boom, you've breached. And I, a good, like, I, see a, I see a lot where, and again, I'm not picking on brothers and sisters, it's just what I see, but like a woman will keep the DVO in place, the guy will, and bring, invite the guy back into her life and he's there, but she keeps it in place just in case. Yes, and he's not supposed to be there at all. No, but and and the, you can't tell the bloke you're like, listen, mate, if you're going to get in this relationship, you t- that that thing needs to be removed for you yeah. to, for this to to work. But they don't, and then what happens? Everything's good for a month, three months, six months. They have an argument, it blows up. She gets straight on the phone to the police. He's freaking, he, he's breached. Still. Or she's got an ex. Mm. She's had a new boyfriend while he's been away. Yep. He comes back, the ex, and he calls up. It happened to a mate of mine two months ago. Yeah. You know, her ex got dirty because she's moved on, gone back to this guy that used to be in her life and, and, and called and, and so now he's on the thing. And it was just, I don't know if it was a mix of laziness on her behalf to, to go in and get the thing, but also just having that that um, that out card if they need yeah. it so that we can get this rid of this person if yeah, I need to quickly. Yeah. And, and the problem is when they, when they do make those complaints, uh, again, whether, whether it's the male or the female, they don't just say, oh, he was there on that occasion. 
They spilled the beans. Oh, the you know, yeah, yeah, everything. Here's the text messages. Yeah, for the last yeah, six months, what's been happening. And then yeah. this guy's got like, you know, 20 counts of <laughs> reaching the order. Yeah. And with domestic violence um, breaches at the moment, the courts are very tough. Mm. And you will, I mean, your second or third breach, you're, you're in jail. You're in jail and you won't get bail. Mm. Even even a bail application in the Supreme Court is very difficult because they just, they, they're treating it with like, it's very sensitive issue. I think the pro- the biggest problem we've got is people manipulating the system. You know, it's 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 making it hard for to legitimately deal out justice and, and to manage this because of the people who are just using using the system yeah, to that to get back and, and, and get spiteful. Uh, and there and was it's an- another matter I was dealing with um, where uh, in that situ- in that case or in that situation, the the wife uh, called the police um, and made a complaint against. Uh, the husband but in reality she was the one that had threw a cup at his head mm-hmm. uh, and uh, sort of was domestically violent but um, he got charged for breaking a cup <laughs> he got charged with domestic violence or, or, or uh, and then he was facing actual jail time because um, she had made an allegation of um, that she, he had choked her Okay. Uh, and all of that. So yeah that's, that's a charge right strangulation yeah, they take it seriously yeah, too very eh? Serious, yeah. very serious he mm. was lucky to get bailed um, but it went through the court system probably for about close to a year, probably about eight, nine months, cost thousands and thousands of dollars. And then only when we got to committal, um, she changed the story and said, no, nothing happened. Wow. I mean, I think it's a red flag. I mean, gen- I mean, this isn't about life advice and like, I'm just, I'm just putting it out there to everyone at home. This is just opinions. You know what I mean? Like... By no means is anything written in stone, but I mean, it just seems to me that if you know relationships in a gets to a point where you're physically abusing each other, whether it's you know, whichever way it's directed, it's probably it's probably a good red flag to say it's time that we need to sort of either walk away from this or get some yeah. counselling. You know, it's Definitely. let's not let this escalate into something worse. I mean, people are getting killed, and as you yeah. said, one a week, yeah, a person is dying because yeah. of this. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. I don't and know. And I think that that's that's the, I think that's the two biggest problems our, our community as a Muslim community mm. are facing. Uh, one is the drugs, mm. uh, which is a very serious issue amongst the youth. Yes, uh, and then this domestic violence. I mean, why is it why is it such an issue within our communities? Oh, I mean, I, I think because and people will, especially outside of the faith, will look at this and, and blame the faith for it because they don't understand. To me, it seems like there's a lot of different cultures that are coming in that are dragging different ways of uh, of of doing things into the equation. What do you reckon? Uh, it's it's hard to say why our community uh, i mean it's not our community in particular i think it's come as a shock to us because our community is not used to dealing or or having drug users or Mm. drug abusers um or even alcoholics you know we we've tend to stay away from uh from that that fitna for quite a while we don't talk about it i mean it's it's that's that's the other biggest issue yeah you know there's there's a young young bloke in a family suffering from uh, drug abuse or, dr- or or an adi- addiction, mm. um, but the family don't want to talk to anyone because they see it as a stigma. It's a shame, yeah. You know, they don't want to. They don't even want to let the uncles know or, or someone that can, um, you know, assist. The difficulty we face is we have a generation coming, uh, coming up, mm. and it's the second or third generation in mo- some families um, in Australia, where they still don't have a sense of belonging or achievement or a direction on which way they're going. And I think part of that is reflected on the domestic violence side of things as well. I mean, the kids are growing up and they don't know what they're doing or where they're going. If they don't have a stable job, our community has lacked um, providing that for them. Mm. You know, they go to, they go get a nine to five job and they want to attend Juma prayers. They can't because they can't take a day off. Mm -hmm. So now they're stuck between, hey, what do I do? Or they may go get a nine to five job and then they can't pray where they work. Mm. And then, so that's, they're like, oh, I better not work. And we don't have uh, the community up in Queensland. It's not as big or as um, uh, as the communities in Melbourne and Sydney where we have business owners employing other Muslims, especially the women who find it difficult finding jobs in with hijab uh, or that they can wear hijab to. So these youth are growing up and then they try one job, a second job, a third job, and then by the third job, they're just exhausted and they're like, what the hell am I doing? Mm. Um, and then they go off the rails, try to earn a quick buck um, by dealing a little bit of cannabis, and then the cannabis goes to ice and meth and coke and whatever else uh, there is, um, thinking that that's how they're going to support themselves. Mm. And then the older generation are saying, hey, I'm getting old. 
and my son's not in a position to look after me, uh, or my daughter's not in a position to look after me, that causes problems between the parents, and then the, they have a go at each other, and then that leads to domestic violence. Mm. Um, so it's sort of intermingled, and I think it's uh, I think the the biggest pet fit now we're gonna face is this drug issue mm. uh, amongst the youth, because it's just smashing every other community. Uh, well, look at underpinnings, and and be curious to see if you agree with this. I mean. I don't want to put a percentage on it, but I can easily say the vast majority of the guys that I deal with in jail are there uh, for drug-related. When I say drug-related, it's not necessarily that they're using, may not even necessarily be selling, although a lot of the time it is, but it's disputes over money that are, that come back to that. It's violence over issues that all come from that scene and that issue and, and, and the bizzo. Um, it's It's... A hell of a big part of the problem. Definitely, definitely. I, w- I would, if I could put a percentage on it, I'll maybe say seventy to eighty percent yeah. of the clients or, or, that or sounds. people that go through the court system, uh, in our community at least, is drug related. Whether yeah. it's collecting a debt, whether it's putting it on someone, whether it's selling, just being drug affected and being an, an idiot and driving the car when yeah, you're not supposed to, just driving or impaired decisions, driving or anything like that. Yeah, um, they go out for a night of fun in the city. You know they. They take a little bit of drugs and then they get into a fight. Mm. Again, comes back to the to the drugs. So yeah, definitely. Um, and then, uh, like I said, we it's, it's just a terrible thing that's happening to us. Um, one, we have uh, abstained from this fitna for, for for a while, and now that it's hitting us, it's hitting us hard. Mm. And we're not in a position where we can address those issues. One of it is, like this, uh, like you said earlier, the stigma uh, or the shame of it, uh, mm. or talking about it, saying, hey, my son or my daughter's taking drugs, what do I do? But I also think our community leaders are not in a position to address. Mm. I mean, I, I, I don't deal a lot with, uh, with the leaders, uh, unfortunately, but the ones I do deal with, I don't think they would have any training. I, I don't think we even have the facilities um, to address people in our community who are addicted no, we don't. We don't have yeah. the facilities in our community. No, we don't. I mean, uh, a private rehabilitation stint um, to assist someone getting off drugs uh, is three months in-house and costs you up to 30000 Easy. Yeah, all day. You know, and, and families don't have that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's. Uh, I think if we don't make a quick move about it, uh, that's, an, that's an issue we're going to have in the future. It's very, co- you, you know, when you mention those figures, you know, it's like 50 grand to run a, uh, a small trial on something, not even that big a deal, 30 grand for rehab. It's a very costly freaking exercise um, it co- <laughs> for us to, to be stupid and, and thoughtless and careless in terms of what we do. You know, we're, we're young, we run around and we think, oh, it's all good. And, you know, it's, you sort of, oh, it's between me and Allah, this sort of attitude. It's like, yeah, no, it's actually, it's more than that. It's... You know, you're not going to dig yourself out of this hole when you get into it. It's going to be yeah. your family. Well, that, that's the thing. Right. Once, once you get, once you get, I mean, once you get picked up by the police, it's not your drugs that are gone. It's not. They're not going to take your mobile phone. Mm. All the cash you have stacked, you know, underneath your bed, uh, or you know, in your in your cupboard, that's all gone. So that hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or whatever you're thinking, hey. I'm going to save this for a rainy day. You think you're rich? That doesn't yeah, even cover the that, lawyer. That is gone like that. Yeah. Good and luck. Then, and then your mum and dad who are pensioners yeah. and your brother that's working a nine to five getting twenty bucks an hour and your sister that's, you know, on you know, twenty mm. twenty one dollars an hour is not gonna be able to fork out the money needed to fight a trial or or, or you know, even even take the matter th- to a sentence. Because it's gonna cost tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, and then to get you the assistance you require. Because there's a there's a difference between taking a matter to trial and getting you found guilty or not guilty or getting you sentenced or getting you the best possible sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, the side issue we have is how do we address this drug problem that, that everyone's going through? And like I said, a, a, without the professional help, you're not going to get off drugs. I mean, given, given the drugs that are going around now, like meth and ice and all that rubbish, it's difficult to get off. It's a minority of people. It's a very small percentage of people that successfully walk away from oh. drugs long term forever right as, oh, it, as it is definitely. and even um, smaller percentage of that is i yeah. mean yeah and, and you without, need help without doing a professional or, or a good stint in rehab mm. uh, you're not going to get off mm. i mean you're already going to be cooked you're not going to be thinking straight mm. um so if you think hey i'm just going to come out and chill at mum's house or dad's house 
um, and not do it anymore. Forget about it. Yeah, go the back to the area. The next time yeah. you're tempted, the next time, you know, uh, Satan starts whispering, this next mm. time your friends say, hey, come on, let's just have a joint and mm. or let's go out for a night out. You have, you've been out of jail for three months and haven't done anything. Boom, it's just, again, uh, I mean, most people don't have the willpower to say no. That's how they get into That's why people are, d- are dying every day yeah. from overdoses. It's not because yeah. they, they're choosing um, this. So, yeah, you, I mean, fighting your criminal trial or, or you know, dealing with your criminal matters um, on one hand is costly. But then trying to get off this rubbish um, is a whole, you know, separate ball game. And where do you where do you find the money? Here's and a qu- here's a question, quick question for you. Well, it's not a quick question, but um, and I don't think there's an easy answer to this. But um, where Muslims are about two percent of the population in Australia, we make up roughly ten percent of the prison population in the larger states yep. in New South Wales and Victoria. I think it's less up here, uh, but there's a lot less of us up here mm. um, in comparison. I'm, you know, I, I I don't have an answer as to why that is. You know, I think that um, it's something we should be thinking about. Are we being unfairly targeted and prosecuted? I mean, if that number was made up largely for, you know, foreign incursion related stuff and things, you know, mm. uh, political sort of crimes, I'd say, okay, well, that's because this spear has been pointed at us for a while. But I don't think that's really making up the bulk of it. We're just talking no, about no, like normal said, crime. Like 70, 80% of people that I deal with drug related charges yeah um now we get we get those silly buggers that come about and they say oh are they only targeting me because because i'm muslim or you know they have a beard and stuff it's like no, no, no you, you've been selling got, yeah you got cool with drugs tons of cocaine actually <laughs> yes <laughs> got um, nothing to do with your religion yeah, mate yeah yeah uh, if if anything don't play the religion card yeah, yeah please the, don't the, even the don't worst, mention it the worst yeah. clients are the ones that come and they say you know, they, every second word is alhamdulillah and inshallah and do this and do that. Brother, they only came to my house because I'm Muslim or, you know, my mum wears hijab and this and that. Nah, brother, you got, there was eight months of surveillance. On they stepped, they wore their shoes on my prayer mat. Like, <laughs> brother, you've disgraced the entire religion in the way you're living your life and you want to complain to God didn't take yeah. a shoe off. Yeah, so. Um, Allah. Look, I think, I don't think the, uh, we're, unf- I mean, there are aspects where we're unfairly targeted. With some that, things we are, yeah, political stuff Yeah, we are. political yeah. stuff, you know, some other things, which is why my passion for uh, being a lawyer is there. Mm. Um, but then we also have, uh, I think a lot of the criminal activity and why we're, uh, our numbers are such in prison is because uh, we just got disfranchised youth. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, this is the third... In some families, it's the fourth or fifth generation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for my family, it's the second generation that's coming up or growing up in Australia. Uh, my brothers have kids, and they, they so that's you know they, that's the third generation growing up. Mm. And it's still, we don't have facilities. We don't have. I mean, there, there was there was a small group in Melbourne that uh, that did it one time, uh, and that for some reason that got shut down. But we don't even have a a, a set of units or, or a community where, like, there's ten houses next to each other that all you know all occupied by muslims whether they're rented or not mm. we have wealthy people in the community um but we don't have a f- uh, for example a business that employs you know you know half a dozen hijabis because they can't work anywhere mm. you know we ha- we have people wearing hijab or, or the sisters wearing hijab they they go get a job you know they, they're educated nurses you know aged care facilities doctors and they go to hospitals and the hospital requirements is hey you have to wear short sleeves because there's an there's an issue you know, um, or, or you know, other people where where brothers want to attend Friday prayers uh, and they can't get a job that allows them to. Um, so I think there's there's a clash there, and I think once life gets tough and expectations of uh, if they if they are married, hey, I need to provide for my wife and children, or if they're not married, hey, I need to support my parents. Um, it, it's sort of how do I deal with this on mm. the shortest way possible. And mm. then they turn to, well, what's my mate doing? He's selling drugs and he's making 10K a week. And the problem is, yeah, the problem is, I, I don't want to use this word, but um, our, a lot of our brothers, a lot of our people are operating, you'd say, within the criminal world, like really successfully. Mm. And I use the term, I don't use the term successfully, meaning actual, but they make a lot of money. Like the, oh, they, 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 they do it. They make it look good, you know. Oh, 100%. Go to, go to Sydney, go to you're, the areas. Kids you're working nine to five, you know, five days a week and then you're doing half a day on Saturday uh, on a retail job. You're coming home maybe 800 bucks a week. you got your mate who goes out one Friday night, comes home with 10 grand. 
Yeah. What are you going to do? And I mean, rent, like you you rent like a two bedroom house in Auburn yeah. or La Camba, <laughs> six hundred bucks a week at least. Yeah. Definitely. You know how the hell can anyone afford to live on that? Well, that's like that's hard, eh? And and I think look again, we need a uh, our leaders or, or the community members or the committees or whatever we have going everywhere, mm. not just in Queensland but in, interstate as well. Everyone's focused on building million dollar masjids. Mm. We don't need million dollar masjids. Mm. No one is going to come pray at your masjid because it's a million dollar masjid. Mm. If it's a prayer hall, they'll come and pray the same prayer as if it's you've spent two million or three million on on building a masjid. Whether there's a chandelier there or not. Yeah, yeah I hear. You know, we we have alhamdulillah, our communities are growing, and yes, we mm. need mosques every every you know sort of every second suburb or so. But we have that. I mean, we, 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 I think in most Muslim populated areas, we have a mosque within a 10 minute mm. drive. I don't think you need to drive more than 10 minutes to yeah. get to, to, to a masjid or a musallah. Um, I mean, the good thing in Melbourne, I mean, when I was living there, uh, we, we, when there was a mosque that was, you know, 20 minutes or 25 minutes away, someone just turned their garage into a musallah, you know? Left the door open, you could come pray your fajr there. You and sometimes, there. aren't they just the best places to go sometimes? Right. Like honestly. It's a small community. It's a yeah. group of brothers that live in the area. They come pray and they start building. Mm. Um, you know, but again, like I said, I mean, the rental market at the moment is crazy. Mm. You know, so that puts pressures on families. Mm. Uh, so again, a young kid that's, you know, his mom and dad are pensioners and, you know, they're getting evicted because the guy wants to jack up the rent. We don't, ha- we don't have a, a, a basis for saying, hey, this family just got evicted. What do we do? Mm. Do we let them go and buy a, a house on interest because it's cheaper than renting? Or do we say, hey, we have a community project with, you know, 50-odd mm. houses there. If you need emergency rental, we'll put you in. And yes, if some people need to stay there long term. But like I said, the building, uh, people may agree disagree with me, and that's fine. But I don't think we need where we are at the moment and, and the problems we face in a community mm. we don't need you know million two million three million dollar masjids it's a very common sentiment like this isn't it's not you're not yeah. uh you're not on your own saying that it's something yeah. i hear all the time yeah you know i think yeah. i think it's most people uh, we, we, we we're getting we're getting our, our, our women are going through bouts of depression and anxiety because they're mm. not doing nothing with their lives mm. you know they're in hijab so they're we're living in for example i'm not putting any suburb down but for example, let's say they live in, in, in Logan or Crestmead or wherever it is. Mm. Their next two neighbours on both sides are redneck Aussies. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy across the road is a redneck Aussie. He comes out every day with BB. This poor woman's stuck in a house. You know, whether it's a housing commission house, whether it's the cheapest rental they could get on the market. Mm-hmm. But she's got nothing to do. And then that builds depression, anxiety, issues in the family. She mm. starts having arguments with the husband. It reflects on the children. The children grow up disfranchised and all of that. Mm. Like I said, in Melbourne, there was one group. Um, and it was a they had a little musalla and across the road from the musalla there was a whole set of units and what they did alhamdulillah the first person that got their foot in there the minute a, a rental came available they put the next Muslim family yeah. there was about 15 uh, townhouses and by the end of it all 15 of them were rented or purchased by Muslims and it was like it was a similar to a gated community they were all living there all the kids grew up together you know everyone was watching someone else's kid you know, the women were hanging out, picnics every day. We don't have that anywhere. I haven't seen it in Sydney and I haven't seen it in, in Queensland. Mm. Uh, and that was the only place I saw it in, um, in, in Melbourne, which was, you know, southeast Melbourne. And it was just small. It wasn't happening anywhere else. You know, and then we have, you know, fundraisers for, you know, to build masjid and put this, but we don't, like, we don't have a rehab centre. Like, this is a problem that's coming up. We don't have we don't have facility to assist people going through domestic violence. Yeah, even housing. I mean, uh, I'm with Muslim Charitable Foundation. Shout out to MCF. I've been with them for eight years. Mm. Um, we own a house at Woodridge that we use for emergency and short-term accommodation. A lot of uh, victims of domestic violence and people in all sorts of situations come through there. But it's one house, you know. Yeah. So if we've got one sister in there, you can't bring anyone else in. Well, We're looking at trying to buy a, a small block of units, you know, raise a million dollars to do that to, mm. to provide housing options because there's just there's just nothing. Yeah, there is. I mean, there I, is. I've seen I've seen people chased away from the mosque. You know, people literally homeless people sleeping outside the front. They've got the little you know sleeping bag or whatever around the side, and people freak out. They don't know what to do, and it's not like. I mean, we should be more warm-hearted towards people, and uh, but I get people that don't know how to deal with it, and it's just like, oh, this is yucky. I don't know how to deal with it, and so they yep. just shoot people away. Yep. But that's not, man. That's I mean, that's not our religion, like, eh? Because it's not just happening. Be in like us. It's not just a Muslim coming to get a free ride at, by living at the masjid, no, or, or, or sleeping in the masjid. They're, they're, I was reading the news the other day, and there's families with little kids, Australian yeah. families, like you know, Anglo-Saxon families, 
that have got kicked out of the rental market and they've pitched a tent in a park with two little kids. Yeah, it's happening now, eh? You know, the other day I was reading statistics in Queensland or sa- southeast Queensland, there's 47,000 homes or a survey of 47,000 rental homes. Mm. Only 7% of them were within a working family's budget, like a husband and wife working, earning up to 120k a year. Wow. Um, and only 7% of those homes were affordable to, those, to, to that thing. Now, like I said, in our communities, we have a lot of the elder generation who are pensioners who are relying on Centrelink, mm-hmm. the younger generation who have got you know nine to five jobs in in, in industries which only pay peanuts. Um, where are they? Mm. You know, where 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 do we put them? Mm. You know, they'll get an eviction notice. They've got thirty days to get out, and none, they can't at the moment. They can't find a rental. So what do they do? They either they either tempted to go buy a house because it's cheaper than paying rent, and then they stuck to the interest. Uh, or I mean, some people don't have any problem with interest, but that's each to their own. Um, or what do they do? They camp, camp in their car or come try to you know sneak a night of sleep in in the masjid, mm. you know, at least chow or something like that. But this is these are these are the problems that I think is not it's not being definitely not being addressed. But mm. whether people are turning their minds to it or not, it's a separate issue. Mm. Like like I said, that's that's just housing, and then we have employment. I mean, this fr- this disenfranchised youth. So coming back to the to the topic of why this is why do, why are we seeing so many Muslims in jails? Mm. Um, it's because of disenfranchised youth. I mean. Where are they going to get a job? Where, where have we built a, let's say a factory, let's say a business that mm. employs, you know, ten Muslims, you know, and it pays and, and, and it pays good money. It pays good money because you know, that's, that's the issue. Because every time we want to we want to employ a Muslim, we tr- or, or give a give a contract out to another Muslim brother or sister that that's got something discount. We say yeah. Where's the discount? You know, and, can, can you do it for cheaper? And that's the thing. Look, there's been you know of of blessed to know and blessed to know a lot of brothers in the community that will offer you know work to people sort of like that um but it is a case of you know you know paying someone 20 bucks an hour or you know 120 bucks a day and it's sort of like alhamdulillah you know like it's something but if that doesn't cover rent what am i really doing now you're taking 40 to 50 hours of my week off me to give me something that isn't enough to sustain myself. I don't have, there's no more hours in the week for me yeah. to make it Do somewhere it. else. Yeah. How are you helping me? So that's it. It comes back to, hey, I'm, I'm in a desperate need. Yeah. I need to pay rent next month. I don't have jack call. And so what did I do? Their mate comes and says, mate, here, sell this and you can make two grand. Mm. Boom. That's all, that's all it takes to start. And yeah. they, they may not have a history of using drugs. They, yeah. they may have never been tempted. Mm. But the sh- life stresses get to you. Mm. And then, that's it. That's where it starts. Yeah. And it just goes on and on. And once you start making money that way, you love it because you're saying, hey, I don't have to do 50 hours. I'm not going to break my back for somebody else, you know. And then that's it. And then, bro, employment, housing. And then now it comes to rehab, you know. So that's where it starts. Mm. And then now we don't even – we have we, – I don't think anywhere in Australia we have a rehab facility. Alhamdulillah, we got no, – just worth yeah. $5 million. Yeah. You know, but we don't. We can't raise a, a million dollars to put towards the rehab facility, no. which not only assists the community, but it also generates, uh, you know, generates income. You know, a lot of a lot of my, a lot of talks that I have with people is, hey, if you're going to spend a million dollars on a masjid, at least make it an income generating masjid. Mm. Like put uh, put a, some shops downstairs, put a cafe downstairs, put something where at least it can pay for itself. You're not yeah. constantly relying on people to commute to commit or donate. I understand the benefits of donating to the, to the house of Allah. Mm. Uh, uh, but again, hey, we can use that money for other needs. It, it, it's not, you don't necessarily only get rewarded for donating to the house of Allah. I'm pretty sure if you donate to, you know, housing to house somebody, mm. you know, Allah, if you shelter, give someone shelter, Allah will give you shelter on that judgment. Yeah, we've got we to spread, 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 it, spread out spread the resources out, a bit. You know? We, so yeah. th- that's the issues of why, I think, of why we're seeing so many people mm. uh, or, or a, a good percentage of the Muslim population in jails or why they make up, you know, like you said, 10% of, of people in jail mm. is because it starts young. It starts young. I mean, I was growing up, my, my brothers uh, were, were the ones that did it tough. Um, they started working when they were in year five. Wow. You know, Inshallah. That we, they were working when we, before we even came to this country. We were refugees um, when we escaped the war in Afghanistan and they mm. were working like from the age of, as soon as they knew which way is left and right, they were working. Mm. And then when we got here, it was school and then, by year five, the one was you know working at a restaurant, and the other one was tr- trying to sell stuff at uh, at uh, a place called Venture, which was like Harvey Norman, 
you know, they, they were like 10 or 11 years old. But isn't it interesting the way people go left and right, you know, like you sort of, that story, you know, your story and your family story of coming here and, and being in need and having a hard time bred uh, within you, you kids, um, the desire to, to do something better and do something good for yourselves and for your family. But then you see other people in exactly the same, and you sort of think, I tend to think, one of the big problems we seem to have here is I think, you know, kids don't and young people don't have that much responsibility. I think in some sense, it's like we've got it too easy here, you know, because well, when you need to go out and work, that builds character, well, right? There, there are two things. You see, when we were growing up, I mean, again, drugs was available and dealing and all of that, making money that way. Um, but it was also a big no-no, even amongst like your group of friends. Mm. Like you... When I was growing up in Sydney, Western Sydney, the people that were sort of dealing drugs were your Asian communities, you know, your five, the 5T gang or whatever it was, um, you know, all those people. Um, you hardly heard of it in, in the Muslim community. But now... Things have changed, every, man. Everything, everyone in the Muslim community is doing it. Come down to Tilopia Street, yeah. You know? Um, so, like, like I said, I mean, we, we came from a hard-working family, alhamdulillah. Um, but even, even the small aspects of smoking... Mm. Like I never got into it One because my brothers Would have beaten the hell out of me But also When I was growing up I was hanging around my cousin uh, And he Like even He wouldn't let me get into it He mm. was my age But he was like Hey no you can't smoke You know this and that Now you got uh, Almost every Person smoking And mm. then When you're doing it tough You got your friend Encouraging you Hey I just made two grand You're just doing it tough Here Move this And you can make two grand Don't you think uh, Don't you think We're missing in our community, specifically the Muslim community, the stick. We, we, we let everything go. You Like, I mean, I don't know of any groups anywhere in the country that are giving young fellas a good kick up the backside for getting involved in stuff like this. It's, you know, we, we call to the good, mm. you know, come to the mosque, do this and everything, but we don't stand up against our own brothers when they're doing haram or oppressing. 100%. It's too hard basket. We don't want yeah. the dramas. Yeah, I, I think the community oh. mindset or, or the people that are involved in this kind of status is like, hey, bugger off. It's my life. I'll do what I want. Yeah. And and again, like, like the, 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 I think that missing the stick is right across Australia. It's not just the Muslim, Muslim community. Mm. Cause you, you get a bunch of these, you know, eshes as they call them, <laughs> uh, you know, these 12, 13-year-olds walking around um, with their Adidas caps and, um, you know, thinking no one, they're untouchables. No one can do that. They'll run amok and do whatever. And that's Anglo-Saxons. And that's right. And they do get, like, there was these young guys that breaking into houses just up the road here yeah. at Karabi, right? And yeah. then something happens to them, you know, one falls over or someone gives them a smack in the mouth and that person's charged. charged. These guys have been breaking into houses for the last six yeah. months. yeah. Um, we're certainly missing that stick from the Muslim community, but again, the, the attitude of those people are, hey, uh, you know, it's my life, I'll do what I want, bugger off. But again, you're right, we need to turn around and say, hey, well, if you want to do that, and it's rightly so, your, your life and do what you want, then don't get involved. Yeah, but it affects me, it affects my kids, 100%. it affects my family. Because when yous are shooting at each other, the bullets that are missing are flying into yeah. my mum and dad's house or the next door neighbour's house or someone else. It, it affects us all, eh? Definitely. And especially, I mean, the drugs that they're selling, it affects, it's going to affect your brother, your sister, mm. your children, your cousins, mm. and then they've brought that home. You know, your kid who's turned 16 has rocked up and said, you know, on a bender, and you're like, hey, he got those drugs of another Muslim guy from the masjid that, that we know. Yeah. That, that we know. And I think that's that, that's a big problem that we're having. Um, but there are, there are communities in America who have taken it upon, Muslim communities, mm. and if they find someone they'll just kick him out of the community. Yeah. Uh, or probably a little bit harsher than that. <laughs> they, yeah. they deal with him and they've been dealing with the good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they, I mean, they're, 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 they're the black communities in America. Okay. Uh, and they've, I've been really, like, I used to read up upon them um, and, mate, they've been doing a good job. Mm. And like you said, bring back the stick and sort them out. We need something there. Yeah. And, and you, can't, you can't be sort of... Um, Hopeful that oh he's he's a Muslim brother and every second word's alhamdulillah inshallah and he's gonna he's gonna come good he's gonna turn his life around force him to turn his life around. How many lives is he gonna destroy, destroy. while we're while sitting back with you know, waiting for it to happen? I know what you're doing, bugger off. Mm. And the second time you do it, I mean, mm. like you said, 
Bring back the stick. <laughs> Bring back the stick. <laughs> Bring back the stick. Look, bro, um, I'm getting the nod. Yeah. Um, so we've, uh, we're running short on time, but it's been a really excellent conversation. We need to have more conversations. We're going to put up um, Abdul. Again, it's Abdul Basir Rashidi. Um, I'm going to put his name up. I don't know if I'm pointing to the right side. Of, we'll point to both. Yeah, I'll point down here. We're going to put <laughs> we're going to put his number up, uh, Abdul's number up on the screen with your permission. Um, if you've got police contact, you know, at home or the kids, um, a quick word of advice. The first thing generally any lawyer will say to someone is don't say anything, don't speak. Anything you say does get used against you. So you find the best thing you can do if you've got police rock up at your house or they're charging your kids or anything is just to contact a lawyer. We're giving you a good long lawyer to contact um, and uh, let them guide you. Um, don't think that you can talk your way out of a situation because very often you talk your way into a much bigger mess than, than you realise. So, brother, Jazakallah khair. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. We'll see you again. Sure. And salam alaikum wa rahmatullah to everyone at home. Bye-bye. Sure.